0: Is Netta Jones. I'm the founder of Liberty. However, you got here, we're glad that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. We want to hear from these women who are doing four completely different things in completely different ways, and we hope you can identify with them in one or more ways. So, I'm going to let them each introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about what they do. Celeste, can you start?
1: My name is Celeste Liversidge. I am the uh, I'm an attorney, and I'm the founder of uh, two law firms. One called Adoption Law Group. The other is called True Adopt. And then we, are, we have recently, or just about, almost to the finish line of launching um, an app and uh, another website that's adoption-related.
0: And our office is in Pasadena. And we'll get to those two things in a bit.
2: Hi, I'm Sarah Doubledam. I'm the CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Darling Magazine, which has recently been changed to Darling Media because we've launched a bunch of different other platforms. We do a print magazine, we have a blog, we have social media events, and now video so we're a five-tier media company.
3: Just five? Just five. <laughs> She'll tell you what the five are later. Possibly product Why not six. Later. Yeah. <laughs> Dream bigger. <laughs> uh, my name is Claire Crisp. I'm from London. I was born and raised in London and uh, came here six years ago to bring my family because my youngest daughter was very sick. And uh, we came here for treatment, and the last 3.5 years I've been writing. Um, my, clinical, my background is as a clinician, as a physical therapist. I was an educator also for 10 years, and um, now I'm a writer and an activist and advocate for women uh, like me, with children like my daughter, Matilda. Um, it's nice to be here. Thank you.
4: And I'm Sarah Magadoff. I own and run a graphic design and branding studio called Canopy. Um, so I help up and coming brands connect with their audiences through powerful storytelling and design, to put it simply.
0: Quite an elevator pitch. Wow, I'm impressed. I, it's been
4: rehearsed, and yeah, it actually I, I didn't I'm come out the way it was written, and I was like, I'm just going, I'm talking, we, we don't I said the wrong we don't words, know it's that. fine. No, that's
0: awesome. So can you tell all of us, because it's nice to have some perspective on where each of you started. Some of you are doing the thing that you set out to do. Others of you aren't. You've switched things up at some point. So we'll start with you, Sarah. Okay.
4: so my background is in architectural design. Um, I wanted to be an architect from, let's say four years old. So that was a dream for me. Um, Set out, did that, got my education, um, got a really amazing entry-level design job in downtown LA for a firm who was designing high-rise mixed-use buildings in Southeast Asia, like the dream job. Um, and then one day, I had my quarter-life crisis, as I think many of us have had, I hope. Not the other one. Um, and I realized I, I loved designing, and I loved the architecture. I did not love the way that the work was done. Um, early mornings, late nights, I was newly married, um, and I needed something different. I needed something with freedom and flexibility and something that allowed me to design, but um, do it on my own terms. So i had a creative renaissance i guess i wrote short stories actually for darling i read a couple so good uh um, really good what else did i do i baked a lot um yeah writing baked <laughs> and then one day i happened upon a friend who was starting a new line of jewelry and she was in over her head and i was like oh i mean i can make a logo for you and design a website, what do you need? And so I kind of was like, give me two weeks, I'll, I'll have everything ready for you. Um, came back to her and she just started crying. And I was like, I think I'm to something. This really worked and felt really good. Um, so she referred me to another friend who referred me to another friend and four months later I had back-to-back clients um, and I looked at my husband, David, who's sitting in the third row, and I said, "Babe, I think I have a graphic design business." And he was like, <laughs> "I totally think you do too." So, um, so that's where I landed. Uh, I got to design. I got, and I still do get to create my own flexible schedule. Um, I get to work during my peak hours when I want to have coffee with a friend in the middle of the day, and then go back to work and finish out the day, and go on vacations mm-hmm. whenever I want to. Bring my work with me if that, if that. Uh, Need
0: be so, and she, actually, Sarah, we'll get back to you on that mm-hmm. because Sarah has something that she started really on social media, yeah, but it's, it's sort of taking hold. Media, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a slow entrepreneur kind of movement. We'll get back to what that actually means mm-hmm. and how you can apply that and cool. the difficult parts that, of applying that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Claire, what's the question? So, what did you do before? You did hit on I, it just oh, a yeah, bit yeah. about being a oh,
3: clinician and an yeah, educator. Yeah, so I was. Um, I was born and raised in London, and um, the, the working-class ethic back then, a million years ago, was that if you go to college, it needs to be something that's going to get you a job. And I wanted to do English, and I wanted to write, but kind of put that to one side. And, and I also loved medicine, so um, I trained at St. Thomas's Hospital, um, opposite the Houses of Parliament. There's a hospital that was founded by Florence Nightingale, so... Um, And then I went on to do 10 years in medicine as a physical therapist and had my own business. So I think there was also a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit back then. Um, And then I had three children and I was traveling a lot because my husband was trying to become an academic and uh, for those of you out there who think that might be a good idea, just want to you just need to buckle up for 10 years of moving. So as a little, I'm not going to go into it, but by the time we'd been married 17 years, I had moved 19 times. Jeez. I got really good at packing. Um, so that was kind of fun. We kind of took our kids with us. And that sort of led to me becoming a home educator, which was for For all the reasons that we were we were basically travelling for, for that period of time, so i um had my kids at home for ten years, which was wonderful until my youngest at the age of three became sick, and then everything stopped um and interestingly, what came of that I mean I'm sort of on the other side now, but uh seven years ago we we six years ago we came here um she's been she's had narcolepsy for seven years and during that time i've become a full-time carer and the last few years i started to i knew i knew i had a book in me and there was probably something casting all the way back to to when i was at st thomas's and and it sort of came alive and i um have just finished a book so i'm now an author thanks for that so good. Sarah. Do you want me to talk about
2: what I did before or the whole story of I, I
0: actually, the whole story okay. is really meaningful, <laughs> okay. if you
2: could tell that. Sure. I wish I had an English accent, but <laughs> I will right. just talk normally. So I started Darlene, or I was an art major in college. And then out of college, I didn't know what to do with an art major. I was working at a restaurant, living with five girls in a house, sharing a bed with my best friend, sharing a closet with her, sharing makeup with her. And we were both working at Pasta Pomodoro down the street, um, being like, what are we going to do with our lives? But the whole time that I was in college, I wanted the reason I got an art degree was to work in media, and I really wanted to bring just a lighter, more beautiful, more life-giving feel to especially women's media and the way that women are portrayed in media. I don't know where that passion came from. It was just kind of always within me, like even in high school I cared about that. And so that's the reason that I pursued that. And then when I, after college, I also got an internship at Sony Pictures to kind of go towards that. So I thought maybe I'll be an art director or a creative director or something and ended up not really liking that. Then I didn't have any money, so I kind of fell into doing a lot of freelance stuff, writing, I did acting, modeling for three or four years. At that time, really fell into just being more and more lost fell into a super deep depression for two years severe anxiety still lost didn't know what to do just had this like burden I really want to do something really meaningful but I felt super powerless and so really took probably like an entire year to work out of that with counselors kind of figure out why I was in that place just figured out that I was just a person that felt really deeply like things of the world and things that made me sad and realizing how to live in that place of not black and white, but but gray and realizing that you can change things, but not everything's always going to be perfect, but you should like do your best to contribute to the world. So I kind of started from that mentality and with this same best friend, just started having this conversation because she was also dealing with a lot of depression like, both our boyfriends broke up with us. It was, like, this total disaster. And we were, like, the blind leading the blind, like, every day, literally being like, I don't know, like, maybe you should take more NyQuil so you can sleep. Like, (laughs) I don't know, like, that was literally... Yeah, sometimes, like, we were just... The worst. So we were sitting at a coffee shop one day, and we are like, why do we have, like, nowhere to go for advice or for mentorship or to know how to get out of this place, you know, that we're in? Um, And so, you know, and just even, like, without, you know, going to a professional counselor, like, you Google things or you look at women's magazines or watch videos, and there was just not, like, a solid place to go and plus our culture and the way that we live isn't really set up for that and for mentorship we're very isolated in our culture with our phones and the way that we communicate and so we thought maybe we should write a book and we're like well that's not like a continued conversation and we're like let's start a magazine that seems super easy (laughs) and so We literally started Googling how to start a magazine, and then we (laughs) bought a book called How to Not Start a Magazine, which is funny. It's a really good book, actually. (laughs) It's like all this advice, like, do not do these things. Your magazine will die (laughs) within the first year because, like, 90% of them die in the first year. Um, So it said... All this business advice said start with a mission statement for your company. And so the mission statement that's on the back of Darlene is what we wrote first. And it took us six months to write it. We have like 55 versions of it. But that's why we put it on the back of every magazine because we decided let's define the type of women that we want, the woman that we want to be and the new wave of feminism that we want to create. And so that's basically where that came from. And then from there, we went to Staples and got a bunch of file folders with stickers and labels, and we're like business, marketing, <laughs> um, social media. I was just like, I got this little like accordion folding folder where I like put all these things, and I just kept putting like clippings and articles. And then we were just meeting with as many people as we could to ask them how to do what we wanted to do. And literally, everyone told me not to do it. Like everyone I met with people that worked in publishing, everyone was so cynical about it, which understandably, because, you know, print is definitely reforming itself. I'll say that. I don't think it's dying. It's reforming itself in a way. Um, So that was pretty discouraging. And so we basically sat on the idea for three and a half years, but we met with women in my living room every week just to have conversations about if we did have a magazine, (laughs) what the articles would be about. And we all wrote a bunch of stuff. So we had all these files, all these things that we were just – having on our computer and all these rich conversations about what it would be, but we didn't really know how to launch it. And then it was actually my boyfriend, now husband, Um, who helped me launch our website, and I was like, I don't want to launch a website, I want to make a print magazine. And he said, well, we live in a digital age, so you need some sort of digital something for people to go to, to see what your print product is about. So I was like, fine, okay, we'll launch a website first. And I really didn't want to do it. But we put all the articles that we had written on the website and sent out an email to every single person that we knew, and we let that run for about nine months. And then we decided that we wanted to do the print magazine, and we had no money whatsoever. So we put the idea on Kickstarter, and within three days, Kickstarter ended up featuring it on their homepage. And they said, this is the freshest thing we've ever seen for women. You should support this. And they wrote about us on their blog. And we were like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy, because we went over our goal in, like, four days, which was only $15,000. <laughs> so we got, like, $19,500. $19,500. And we used that to do our first issue of Darling. So at that time, we you know been literally talking about this idea for five years. So we knew a lot of people, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of writers, a lot of photographers. So we just asked everyone to contribute, and we made our first and second issue off of that. And then our third issue got picked up by Anthropology randomly because they ordered one on our website, and we were putting a shipping label on a maggot on a box, and we were like. Wait, what? So, like, what's what's happening? And, yeah, my husband was like, hold on, wait, what are, what? you know, so then he figured out that they actually were interested in ordering wholesale. And so that was kind of our first big break. And then, do you want me to keep going?
0: Or no, is that good? Let's, I'm okay. going to come yeah, sure back to you in a, a second.
2: That's, like, the thing. Yeah. No,
0: I, I appreciate that, and I think more importantly awesome. you guys appreciate that because sometimes we don't know. Many of you have seen Darling, and you're like, how did she get here? You know, it looks so easy, and it wasn't. And five years, yeah. talking about five years before she got to this point where she just ended, that's a, long, that's a long time and a lot of hard work. So I think that's a really important piece of that story. So thanks. And Celeste, go ahead. And just to, um, sorry, on, the, on your story with, who, what was the name of your friend? The Pomodoro Cafe friend. Kelly. So, so what are we doing? That's not Kelly. That's Celeste, but she was she she was my Pomodoro friend. So we lived in the same room. We we couldn't dress out of the same closet because look at her and look at me. Um, but I remember after she had her first baby, she was like, "Oh, I have all these maternity clothes for you," and she gave me a pair. of... I'm sorry, they were probably like juicy pants. I don't know what they were. And she she held them up, probably and I was not. like, what yeah. are these? Like, what am I supposed to do with these? They're culottes. I can't wear these. Oh, that's funny. So that, well, that, OK, so
1: yeah. since you opened the door yeah. <laughs> walked down memory lane, so the first time Netta had a date with her beautiful, wonderful husband, Brian, um, she was visiting California. And I was like, OK, you can borrow something. It's going to be awesome. And so it's like, I have these great black pants and she could put them on and they were literally <laughs> like, yeah, knickers are over. So yeah, we they were over. readjust that. So the question is, what, Just what happened? It, so
0: you're probably a little bit different because I think you've been doing what you're doing now, yeah. but what did you do before you became an entrepreneur? So, yeah, so I graduated
1: law school and, um, do you want to start, wait, that, that's a good place to start. Not right? Nordstrom,
0: but yeah, start <laughs> with I was born in school. Michigan. Yeah. But so, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, went to law school and I uh, had a little bit of a crisis in law school because I did not, none of the things that people were getting after was of any interest to me at all. Um, so every time someone was, say they were on a, the way to interview at a firm, like, n- nope, no, 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 no. Um. I was, at the same time, I was volunteering at a pregnancy clinic in Santa Monica, the, a, women's, a women's clinic, and loved being on the front lines of, of what people were experiencing and doing something to, to contribute, um, and figured out that there was something called adoption law, which I was terribly interested in, but knew that it was really hard to just go out and say, I'm an adoption lawyer. So started practicing family law. And did that for about five years, which was a really great foundation, foundational experience for me. And it, the the clients that I encountered there and the work that I did there led me to actually writing a book um, based on a really a need that I saw recurring, kind of a recurring theme. And that that is a recurring theme later for me. That that actual this the seeing of a need and trying to figure out a way to to fulfill it. Um, so then got married and had kids in rapid succession, um three in in thirty thirty five months, which put a little bit of a wrinkle. Um, but before I did, before I got married, i uh, I opened my I started my own practice. I knew that I wanted to do adoption. I felt like I had enough of a foundation from my firm and said, this is this is I got I, I want to do this. I gotta do it. So started like literally a block from here oh. in this teeny little office, I went up and I could afford like this this much for rent. And it was basically a closet, but I loved it. I was like, I have an office in Santa Monica. This is super Mm -hmm. cool. This place didn't exist. How cool that would have been. Um, So then had, had babies and did everything I could to keep my hands in the work. And we did every machination you can imagine of I work from home. I have an office. I work from the basement i work from I did a lot of work from my car during those years because it was you could just roll up the windows and go around the corner a lot and my favorite story from those years was being trying desperately you know the more you try to get away from your your littles they they they're super <laughs> interested and they follow you and they bang on the door and we, and at one point, a, someone had called and it was a judge on the phone, which is a really big deal and always sort of freaks me out but um, so I walked in. I was like, oh. I walked into the bathroom and I closed the bathroom door. But there's two doors in this bathroom. Two, one of the bathroom. So I closed the door. I was good. I get in the shower. In the shower, with, behind the shower curtain, I'm on the call, and my little three-year-old, my oldest, she came in and she threw the curtain back and said, "Mommy, why are you in the shower?" <laughs> yeah, totally blew my cover. Is <laughs> one of my low points. Um, <laughs> But then it was like I need an office, so you know tried to have an office and tried to. So we, you know, you meddle through, and I was just really grateful to be able to keep my hands in the work that I, that I loved, um,
0: and that that kind of was the that that's the that's the chapter one. Can you yeah. tell us the name of that book? It sounds like you're going to come back to it, but can no, you? I,
1: I won't. The last okay. one down the aisle wins, and it's a book written for women in their. Really in their twenties, talking about what life could look like for people in their twenties and how important it is to embrace those years. Um, it's the the subtitle is the, the ten keys to a fabulous single life and an even better marriage later. That's a mm-hmm. mouthful, um, but it's yeah, all kind of break, breaking a woman's life down into ten to kind of ten facets and how important it is to really fully embrace that time in your life as a preparation for um, for the future.
0: Um, so Sarah, we'll come back to you really quickly. So can you, t- this Sarah? Sorry, okay. yes. sorry. Two Sarahs. Um, so you sort of answered my second question was why did you become an entrepreneur? So you kind of already hit on that for mm-hmm. us. But can you kind of, as you were navigating, that was a great story and it sounded lovely and like you transitioned into this and one client turned into another client turned mm-hmm. into another client. When was it not pretty? When did it become hard? What was the thing you had to overcome?
4: Oh, um, so a recurring theme of my entrepreneurial journey is building a business that I think that everyone else is building and not building the business that works for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, never having anticipated being a small business owner, um, There are a lot of people that I talk to who are entrepreneurs who are like, I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, that never occurred to me until it kind of just clicked one day. And I was like, this actually does work. Um, But not having any experience or having grown up under parents who own their own small businesses, I was completely operating from... um, like, 0% knowledge. So I read books. I took people out for coffee, asked other designers, like, literally just how, you do, how do you do it? I don't know what I'm doing. How do you find a client? How do you, like, literally, how did you just do that on Photoshop? Um, it felt like I didn't know how to do anything. So I, I just looked at everyone else, and I was like, I'm just going to copy what they're doing. Um, and then two years into my business, so let's just say at the end of last year, I... I was just sitting in my office one day and I was like, I don't even, like, why do I feel stressed every single day? Why do I feel like crying so often? I feel like I'm just in the exact same position that I was in um, back at my architecture firm when I was like... I love designing and I love the work that I'm doing, but why does it feel like such a burden? And so I kind of just, at the beginning of this year, put the Etch-A-Sketch on everything. I closed my eyes and I was like, well, what does my ideal day look like? How many hours am I working? How many hours am I playing? And how many hours am I doing house tours? Um, And I answer that for myself five hours a day max. That's my threshold. That's how much I can be creative each day before I kind of am like just staring at the screen and creating really crappy work. Um, And... So five hours a day, 20 hours, 20, 25 you hours. You literally,
0: that was intentional. You were mm-hmm. it's like keeping a, you know, a food diary or whatever. Like you were really marking it out Yeah, I really mean,
4: it's, it's up it here. Time. I know, like I'm fairly aware that I get into the office around 10 a.m. and then I get hungry around noon or 1. So then I make lunch and go for a run and then I finish up the rest of the like emailing and accounting and like whatever stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't utilize my brain. I do in the afternoon because that's not my creative hours and how
0: long have you been tending Mm -hmm. to that schedule
4: for five months and and i'm happier than i've ever been ever in my career both like my educational journey and
0: and has that was that what birthed this entrepreneurial this slow entrepreneur sort of movement so can you define that for what is it what do you mean when you say that? really
4: simple so the overarching idea is we work to live we don't live to work So my question to my audience is, what does that look like for you? I know that there are people in this audience who um, I've sat down to coffee with who are like, I can literally wake up at 5 a.m., start emailing and then um, go to bed at 2 a.m. And I'm like happy just going from thing to thing to thing every single day. And I'm like, wow, can I get a little bit of that slash um, everyone looks looks different and everyone's journey and the way, um, in which they create or produce looks vastly different. So, um, while I might only have a five hour threshold every single day, that might be different for someone else. But I think that we could all, um, do ourselves a great service to check in with our work-life balance, mm. if that's even achievable, whatever that means. Um, and figure out, is there, is there a way, what am I not meeting for myself? Do I always complain about not going to the gym? Do I always complain about not having enough time for myself? Is there a way to curb back on the amount of um, time you spend working and um, put that energy toward something else in a way that brings more happiness and joy to your life? So that to me is the final result is, are you, happy? Are you experiencing joy? Are you happy? Um, So it's less prescribed, like
0: this is is what everyone should do to Mm -hmm. live this Mm -hmm. awesome life Mm -hmm. and more identifying what works for you and and maybe perhaps blocking based on that and leaving a certain amount of time for all these things. Mm -hmm.
4: I like starting with the question, what does your ideal day look like? Mm. Um, It's a a good question
0: and I do it with clients and it's always (laughs) shocking. They'll They'll answer that question, and then the next question is that they tell me what they want to do, I'm like, well, these two things actually don't match, so we're going to have to start from a different point. Um, Okay, Claire, when did you... So let's... We've fast-forwarded. They don't know your story and why you wrote the book, so quickly tell us you're in the States, um, but this time you landed in the States not because of your husband and his academic um, search for a, a place to land, but... You you did so because of your
3: daughter. Can you just back up really quickly and tell yeah, us that so story? So, in um, I said earlier that in 2010, my daughter became sick, and I'm a bit of a fast fast study. So I I figured out very quickly that treatment wasn't available for her. I understood that her condition narcolepsy wasn't curable, but I also understood it was treatable, and that the difference uh, between being untreated and treated was was worlds apart. So. Um, In 2000, in August, no, July of 2011, um, we landed here. We'd sold our house in Bristol, found a doctor at Stanford who was the world's leading expert in narcolepsy um, and who was someone who had the kind of clinical confidence to take on the youngest person Um, in the world so we landed in 2011 and you know moving halfway across the world and saying goodbye to our families wasn't in our master plan at all so um, it was it was a huge challenge it wasn't like going for the the, we'd, we'd done a year previously in Princeton which was wonderful and another year at Notre Dame which was you know these wonderful study leaves this this was this was forever this was extremely the stakes were very high and we sold everything we had to kind of just even get here so um that was um in july 2011 so we've been here six years and so and
0: just so happens that today claire's podcast is live so you can after after this listen to the whole story but just so we can get everybody on the same page so you guys land here you're going through I mean, it's hard to be a mother of three, period. But you were in a situation where your care for Matilda was literally 24 hours. Yeah. You were waking up every two hours. So for those of you who've had an infant and you're like, when will this be over? This, th- There was no, when will this be over? This was the new normal for Claire. So talk to us a little bit about that and how that shifted everything for your older two kids.
3: Yeah. Um, so I think... Ned has touched on something that's really deeply challenging, and that is sleep deprivation. And my daughter, when you have narcolepsy, you you lose your sleep center and your ability to regulate normal sleep. So I had a three-year-old who not only couldn't sleep, her sleep was replaced with hallucinations, and she was in pain. She was in so much pain, she would beg me at that age to cut off her legs. So I watched her do that for several years before we got help. Um, And sleep deprivation messes with your head. (laughs) So the challenge for me was to do my best in finding her help and care, but also try and manage um, just beyond being exhausted, because the only way to care for her pre-treatment was to hold her. So this had an impact on everyone, of course, because I wasn't the same person anymore. I stopped being able to function pretty much at home in the day. I wasn't able to educate my older two. They they spent at least a year by her bedside in hospital in and out. And I just thought, well, this is an education. But really, my heart was breaking. Um, so the impact and what I try and say in my book is that the impact of of a chronic illness when your life and those that for those that you you love and you care for when you realize that that is never going to be the same everything changes and how then do you find joy how like when you sign you know when we when I got married to my husband and had these three wonderful children and started as a professional you know, I was signing up for something, but when, when all, everything changes and is n- clearly never going to be the same, how, how do you make that work? And, and how do you make it work well? So... Um, You've kind of got me at a good point because the last seven years have have not looked very pretty. And I probably couldn't have sat here without crying. But um, having finished the book and being seven years in and Matilda's doing pretty well on treatment, I think it's really important for me to communicate to people that despite these huge challenges, when your life is rerouted and you, you really don't know what to do with that, because we all know someone, right, with, with, who's had cancer or had a stroke or struggled with diabetes or lost their leg, like you were telling me with your cousin. You know, these things, I'm, I'm not talking about something that's that unusual, but how, how do we do that well for ourselves genuinely and for those that we love? And um, so you've, you've caught me really at the end of a, a long seven years
0: Well, we're glad we caught you. Um, And just again, so you're an author, and many of you here might be wondering, what does that have to do with entrepreneurship? But... um, I can tell you, and she can tell you firsthand, um, it has everything to do with entrepreneurship. Both for those people who are trying to get published by a traditional publisher, it's it's the way in which you promote yourself, it's the platform that you build where you have an audience who's coming to that platform, who's curious about whether it's narcolepsy, or in Celeste's case, whether it's about being single and pushing off marriage intentionally. Um, you have to build that energy and that excitement around it. Long gone are the days of I wrote a great book and all these publishers are clamoring for me. Um, There are cases of that. And actually, we have um, somebody who's speaking on a panel tomorrow that has that story, but it's very unusual um, she lived in a harem <laughs> for two years. So yeah. if yeah. you want to do that cool. to get your book written, that's yeah. an option. But yeah, a good for option, the most right? part, um, and she's <laughs> awesome and you should listen to that podcast as well. But um, so can you answer for us, what was entrepreneurial about this? And please share that you self-published.
3: Yeah, that was, that was the moment really because I knew I had a story and... Um, I felt fairly confident that I could communicate that story and reach people. Um, and my husband is, is very well published, and he was saying, "Hey, you know, send it to Erdman's and IVP and all this sort of stuff." And you know there was this thing in the back of my mind that thought, did well, he I say it like that.: He does. Okay. He says, "Hey, you know? A lot of people say that he sounds like God, actually. He does) <laughs> I've I've heard him preach. No, don't he does tell him that. Like a... So, and I just thought, well, I don't. Well, all right, I did. I sent it to Erd, Erdman's and IVP, and they, you know, I got all these different agents and publishers saying it's very well written, but mm, not a great fit. Or we're very busy right now. We'll get back to you in six months. And I got really tired of it. And then I thought, well, I don't need the kudos. I don't need a publisher to tell me it's good. I, I know it's good, and I say want, it. Say I it. I know it's. Good. <laughs> um and and also there's this timeline i would watch him i would uh, watch him wait for two years he's done the book um and he's two years before he brings it home one random day like a wednesday goes oh here it is like there's no marketing <laughs> i'm like he's just written a book and he's even designed the damn cover and let me tell you the checks like i've actually we've received a check from traditional publishers for 16 cents and we've opened it, and he's like, I've just been paid. <laughs> I hope this isn't being videoed, is it? <laughs> I've just been paid it by, is being recorded. Okay, by X. Um, and I'm like, oh, awesome. Anyway, so self-publishing, there was lots of reasons. I didn't want to wait. And this is the huge um, benefit, one of the huge benefits, apart from financial, of course, because I pretty much get like 40% back on Amazon, not 2% back from X. Um, publishing house, so I love that. But I also love the creative um, side of it because I'm I'm pretty nerdy about even things like fonts. <laughs> um, I you good company. Know. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted the book to be to to not look self-published. So I think you know, self-publishing three, five, six years ago, you could pick up a trade book and a self-published book and go, ooh. That's that's bad. that's self-published. And I was really determined that you'd be able to pick up my book and say, wow, that's Penguin. (laughs) Well, it ain't Penguin, but... um, So I love the creative control, and I love the control over the timeline, and I like being able to... um, have uh, my own marketing strategy and knowing my audience and and being able to connect with them through social media and events like this. So I feel very connected to my reader. And I'm not sure my husband would say the same. Well, and the margin. I mean, you hit on it a little
0: bit. But one of the things Claire is able to do is when you buy her book, she's able to give a portion of that to Stanford. Yeah. So uh, you don't always have that ability when you're Mm -hmm. only making 19 cents. Uh, What are you going to give to, you know, your philanthropic partner? So it allows, it allows for that sort of thing as Mm -hmm. well. Thanks, Claire. So since we're talking about self-publishing in a it's a different animal, but tell us a little bit about, so you walked us through how you got to the launch of Darling. You walked us through the success of Darling. I actually found you on that Kickstarter campaign. So, um, it, it it got you more than just the money you needed for that first issue. It got you noticed by a lot of people. Um, then what? You print the first piece. Where do you distribute it? How besides anthropology? How do you get it into the hands of people? And how did you create what really was more than just a quarterly publication? It became a movement.
2: It's a good question.
0: <laughs> you have an answer, I know. <laughs> Um, Yeah, that was definitely,
2: I mean, we're definitely very, very grassroots. Um, We've never, like, bought Instagram followers or anything, like, paid like that in order to grow the platform. And so anthropology helped a lot because, you know, you're instantly in 250 stores in the U.S. and Canada. So that's just, like, every state, you know, people walking in, picking it up. At that time, yeah, we started being on Instagram, started getting more followers. And then just word of mouth, you know, asking the people that were our fans to help spread it. And a lot of it did happen on Instagram. That's still like our biggest platform across Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, everything. And I think it's because we're such a visually driven company that we, you know, mirror that on our Instagram. We've done that consistently since we started it, but I would just say it's literally very grassroots. And then just being very strategic about, who we'd partner with and so for us we're working with around 100 contributors per issue and so that's a lot of people with a lot of platforms who know a lot of people who have unique voices so for us you know it's it's working with them really well making sure they're really happy with the product so that they'll share it you know and then they share and they share it and then eventually getting to a point where I think it was issue five we got Olivia Wilde in the magazine which was which was amazing and now we've continued to work with more and more celebrities who have been bigger and bigger celebrities as we've gone because you get relationships with people and with publicists and they know the way that you talk to influencers the way that we uniquely tell their stories it's not just like what tv show are you working on it's deeper questions like what do you want to say to women or Mm women or to your 16 year old self like trying to foster something that's worthy of conversation that they want to share and that's different and i think that's kind of been our key selling point in starting the movement is people love to believe in something people want to be a part of something that's just our human nature Mm -hmm. and so for us it's always been you know be a part of what we're doing this is this what we're doing this is how it's changing culture this is how it's changing women this is how it's changing us and that it's just so Positive, You know, like, we're the only magazine that doesn't Photoshop women, like, their skin or bodies. We use all different sizes of models and use every single ethnicity and every issue. It's a goal. Even though we're not perfect at it, like, at least we're trying. And, of course, people love to criticize that. but We're
0: like, well, at least we're trying to do it, you know, like, every single time. Who has those people? Like, we need to stop them from (laughs) Creating, Like, who who are they? Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. So... For us, yeah, it's just been, yeah, how do you create um, what, I think it's Tom Peters, he calls brands a love mark, which is a brand that people actually fall in love with, and how do you create that where it's not just a, you know, a stale brand, but it has heart behind it, and so for us, you know, Darling has a voice, we personify her through eight personas in the magazine, like the achiever, the intellectual, the hostess, the stylist, the explorer. Um, the dreamer so that it's like you, like you feel like this is me, I can find myself here you know and when we talk about darling, we say like darling is the voice of a friend and so people feel so connected to it and that's the point because we want people to feel loved by our brand and like it's actually like a person talking to them versus just like mm-hmm. a, a physical product and so that's kind of how we've grown the movement it's, it's really about
0: visuals and about language and about loving our audience when did you introduce the centerfold that said we don't or untouch i'm sorry if i'm butchering it what is it, it says exactly?
2: it's a full spread in the magazine it says none of the women in this magazine have been retouched so people can open it and take social media photos with it um, we did that on issue five okay so yeah we wanted to make that public
0: and just make a statement so really using the magazine as a platform for the movement versus almost the other way around, which we'll talk about in a second, now how that's grown into what will be this multimedia empire. Exactly, okay. yeah. So the magazine was is kind of like marketing for
2: the movement, okay. essentially. It's, okay. it's like the the forward-facing product of the brand, but the brand has a lot more behind it.
0: Any surprises, like as you were creating for those five years and the conversations in your living room and all the things you heard people talking about any surprises as to what kind of took hold and what you thought was going to be a conversation starter? And, in fact, people weren't engaged as, or as engaged as you thought both.
2: Um, yeah, I feel like people have really, really resonated with the mission statement. We weren't, I wasn't sure what people would think of that or if they would criticize it. Um, we've had some criticism, people saying, well, isn't this just another laundry list of things that you're telling women to be? But my answer to that is like, well, don't we all want to be a good person? Don't we all want to aspire to something? At least this is like a positive thing. we're not saying you have to be perfect. But this is like, you know, something that kind of models like a really good woman that's good to the core. (laughs) Yeah, you want to be something. So that's kind of been the only thing that I was really surprised. I was like, oh, I never intended it for it to come across like that. Um, But I would say just the topics that people want to... Hear about essentially it's anxiety depression abuse loneliness really sad things honestly and people are really hurting when you really ask them like how are you really you know like how are you really doing and so when we ask for feedback that's always surprising to me that women aren't as happy as I sometimes think they are actually so but it's interesting. even our readers I'm so.
0: sure there's data that will support totally. this as you mm-hmm. go through that once it's shared once they know other people are having that, that that alone, that knowing somebody else who exists with whatever that is exactly. changes the game for them. Yeah.
2: Like the emails we get are so incredible. Like when I got once, this girl said, I've never felt like I was worth a second look in my life oh, until I read Darling Magazine. And you're like, oh my, <laughs> oh my gosh. So we get things like that where it's literally like changes their perspective about how they think. And so that's super, super encouraging to us that are creating the, the editorial content awesome thanks sarah
0: mm-hmm. so celeste i'm going to hop on so you're an adoption attorney you're taking calls from judges in the shower <laughs> now and you're representing just for those of us that aren't clear on the adoption process you're representing both uh, the adoptive parent and the birth mother just depends on who hired you or yeah, it just depends on the way that
1: the case is structured, but never at the same time. But worked, worked a lot with adoptive parents, um, always and without getting too into the minutia of how adopt you know the legal structure of adoption. But just working with with uh, people that are wanting to adopt. Sometimes working with the birth mother who is um, wanting to find an adoptive family and make an adoption placement for her unborn baby.
0: Okay, so you're working with both. And then you take a step back at some point or you're laying up at two in the morning and you're saying, there's other stuff missing. There's other stuff in this process or in this adoption landscape. And you come up with three other businesses. Tell us what's dangerous those middle-of-the-night conversations Tell us about those and how they function together. Because they're all the outgrowth of you being an adoption attorney and going to lots of conferences and hearing from lots of adoptive um, parents, birth mothers, and other attorneys. What's... Tell us how those three things are distinct from one another and how they came from your experience.
1: So, typically, when I would go, when I would meet new people, and they would ask me what I did, and I would say, I would do it, "I'm an adoption lawyer." The response I always got was, "Oh my gosh, that's so awesome! That's so it must be so happy." And other attorneys were like, "Oh, that's happy law. You know, I want to, I want to do that. I'm <laughs> doing something really boring." And I always, I, I received that. And I was like, "Yeah, it absolutely." And, and I just went with that for, for lots of years. Um, and we, we really did our best to care for, for the birth mothers that we were working with that were in crisis and that were walking through a really difficult time. But my world at that point was I really was not comfortable living in the gray. I really, really liked things black and white. And there was just a growing unease that, that started Occurring internally, Um, and it caused me to kind of step back, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of things in the adoption industry that are really problematic, and it's not happy. It's not a happy. It's Mm -hmm. it's not happy. It's it's grief and loss and sadness for everyone involved, and there was a lot of things going on in the the industry that troubled me on a really really deep level. So at some point, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull back from my practice, and I just can't, I knew I just couldn't continue going about doing it options the way things were being done. And I would try to have conversations with people at conferences, people that I really respected who are amazing lawyers, and I think are, are really, were leaders in the in the field, and couldn't really find my people. Like I would say, you know, is this going on for you? Is this, is this, how do you feel about this? Can you believe that this happened? And I would get a lot of crickets, um, a lot of just you know a lot of this. And I realized that these were, I wasn't gonna, I, w- I just couldn't, I couldn't couldn't connect with people that I felt like were sharing this this concern. So I really just pulled back, and I put my mom hat on, and and I just kind of de- delved into that for a full full steam um, for a while. And sometimes I would put my my suit on, and I would go to court, and I would felt like I was sort of pretending being um, being a professional Um, but it was a really tumultuous time internally for me because I I felt like okay I'm not getting any younger and this is what are you going to do like what what are you going to do this is this is your opportunity but I couldn't really couldn't get my mind around what what it was going to look like what it needed to look like how in the world would I be able to affect change in a really big industry that has a really dark underbelly mm-hmm. that people aren't really talking about even, even now. Um, so I started just thinking and dreaming, and then I would pull back from that and say, no, no, you can't do that. And I finally was able to get to the point, it's like, you know what, I'm, I got to move away from the, if it's not perfect, I can't do it. Point and just say, mm-hmm. and I think the who who did who said start by starting. A lot of people, but who was the? I yeah. don't actually know who. Someone brilliant. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it was just Celeste. You you're not getting any younger, and you keep seeing this these problems that really are troubling to you, and you are you are poised to do something about it. Stop second guessing. Stops second guessing. Stop thinking well, maybe I'm not, I don't have as much expertise as I need. What if people don't listen to me? Do I really know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm completely, I just don't get it. And I would continue to have these experiences that confirmed everything that I was feeling. And finally said, you know what, I've I've got to do something about this. These are problems and I can see the solutions. And I sort of kept waiting for other people. Surely somebody else without three kids um, is going to is going to figure this out and start doing it and I'll be so excited and I'll cheer them on and I'll support them and no one, no one did, no one did, no one did. It's like, okay, I've got to, I got to do it. So, I started by starting and Netta had a lot to do with that. Um, I went to a workshop downtown and I was like, ah, oh, I don't have time to go to this workshop and <laughs> I was on the phone. I was constantly on the phone and, you know, annoying everyone taking my calls to, and, I started formula. I started really putting structure around. And that's what I had to do. I had to just carve out this time to say, no, I'm going to do this. And just started by starting. And slowly but surely developed this idea. And I started talking about it. And every time I talked about it, people would say, that's fantastic. That's a great idea. And they would see that it was a solution to a need. And anyone in the adoption industry knows the need like this. But even people that... That weren't familiar, lay people would, would, would they would be able to connect with the idea. And so we started, and that was not that long ago, and it's been an incredible, incredible ride. So
0: tell us the three platforms. Yeah.
1: So th- here are the problem, and again, I don't want to get too technical about about adoption, but here here's the bottom line. There's a lot of there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems going on, and the internet has facilitated these conversations. And so somebody a birth mother in Virginia is having a conversation with somebody in California and saying, that happened to you too. And so the internet has completely changed the way we talk about a topic that really hasn't been uh, a topic of conversation, like other things that are, that are, um, that are kind of points of despair for people. So we started by launching, there were three problems. Number one, birth parents were not getting adequate legal representation um, so I said, you know what? We're going to completely change our practice, and we only represent birth parents. That's it. We only represent birth mothers. I'm just, I'm going for it. And there's no one else in the country doing this. And I just went to an adoption conference in Montreal, and I got a lot of, huh, from <laughs> from the from people, when I explained what what our firm True Adopt is. Mm-hmm. The second problem was the way birth parents were finding adoptive parents. Is, was so uh, it was so you know fifteen years ago it was through an inter- intermediary whereas every in every other industry people are connected right mm-hmm. they're connected with each other because of because of technology but there's these intermediaries that are in control of the process mm-hmm. and there there's a huge just financial incentive and there's a lot of things that I think are bordering on really on human trafficking mm-hmm. and so that that has been such a something that has just eaten away at me and so we created this app for people to find each other. And I used to say that it was the Tinder of adoption until someone said, mm Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, is this being recorded? Yeah. Okay. So it's not the Tinder of adoption, but it is a great platform. Maybe like the eHarmony. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. A little safer. Or just a platform where adoptive parents and birth parents can connect. Wow. Um, so it's, and it's a way for, it's a way for, that so awesome. catapults that the, 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 is, is going to catapult the adoption industry mm. into this, you know, this era and taking advantage of what's available to us. But it also, we were able to insert our values into the process so that whoever matches with the with with the birth mother has to be working with an adoption professional that promises and, and signs a, an agreement that that person will be separ- separately represented by legal counsel, mm. that they don't charge unreasonable fees, that they, so we're creating this this platform that if you want to be a part of it, you have to raise the standard. You have to mm. raise the bar, and then the third thing. So that was the, that was problem one was the repre- was the finding each other. Problem two is the representation, and really quality representation for a group of people that were is very disenfranchised. And then the last one was, you talk a lot about you know adoption now ninety percent of in ninety percent of cases there's an ongoing relationship between the adoptive parents and the birth parents. Mm. But what does that mean? So we're creating these agreements and just setting people on their own, and they fail, and people don't follow through, and they're uneasy about being on Facebook together, and and or birth mother gets all the pictures on her phone, and then she loses her phone, or the adoption agency is the intermediary and leaves the pictures in their file, and um, then which causes a breakdown in the relationship. So Facebook, it's like why isn't there a private? platform for people to stay connected Mm. in a a secure way that's not posting, sending pictures of kids through the internet and doing things that make people feel very nervous. Mm. Um, And so that's what we we created, Adopt Connect. Mm. And it's basically Facebook for adoptive parents and birth parents. And there's also a marketplace aspect of it, which we're going to take percentage of that and give it back to birth mother support groups.
0: That's awesome. Pretty amazing. I mean, to hear how for how many years, and I won't have her say, but she's been practicing um, law and then finding in that story and on that path, all the problems that needed to be solved, waiting. And Celeste is a very able person. And even she was waiting to see who else could do that and would do that. And I think it's us, right? When you start to have that itch and you know that and it's not that you look inside yourself and say, I have the capacity. It's really, I have the heart. I, have, I am motivated to make this mm-hmm. um, different. And then to just start. To just start. So thank you for that. Okay, I'm going to ask two more questions because I want to leave time for questions um, from the audience. And if you guys could just quickly share a few things. So a resource, a tip, something that has been really helpful in managing your day, a book that you've read that really inspired, anything that you can give us. Um, give all of us that okay. we can take away.
4: Okay, I just finished... Finished Tribes by Seth Godin because um, I was very curious about. Oh, I want to start a movement and I want to call it Slow Entrepreneur. How does one start a movement? And one of a friend that both you and I know was like, Oh, read Tribes. Seth Godin knows all about that. So I feel like that's a good recommendation, jumping off of actually um, your two answers. Um, Tribes by Seth Godin. If you ever have an idea and you're like, Oh, I think someone else should start this, but you're the one with all the passion for it. Absolutely, it's, it's such a quick read, 100 pages. Um, a book and a resource an app
0: if you have any kind of resource that you use and if you don't we can come yeah i'm analog so maybe you're analog my husband loves that okay he's analog (laughs) too um claire
3: um i just thought besides your book yeah i just started um hal elrod's the miracle morning which is the absolute ultimate challenge for me because he advocates that your entire day, your entire life is basically determined by how you spend the first hour. And so you need to get up early and do... It's called um, savers like silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, reading and scribing. Um, so that's, that's been pretty tough for me, but I love... The meditation is something that I'm just not, you know, naturally very calm. So I've appreciated reading that. Um, and then I, you know, there's apps for everything. So I use Simple Habit, which is five minutes of meditation um, each morning. And even now my mind still like wanders and I have to bring it back. But if I can stick with it, um, getting up at five, even on um probably like three and a half broken hours four hours broken sleep i reckon you can too
0: that's awesome so i'm not going to let you just pick your own i'm going to ask you something specific so darling right now is in the middle of kind of round two of really expanding um to different mediums and use there's kind of a financial vehicle right now in place um can you tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing um, in terms of growing creating the money so that you can grow because it's different from Kickstarter. So
2: Sure, there's a couple new platforms that do a certain type of crowdfunding that's called equity crowdfunding, where people can go to the site and they can actually buy shares in your company. And that is what we are doing to launch Darling Studios. So we have some projects already going. Different ways we fund the video stuff is by working with brands. So we're working on a couple projects that are funded by brands. So that's where the money's coming from. But to start our internal original projects, which is a slate of 20 different TV shows that we have, a couple documentary ideas, we're trying to raise money. So we've used this platform. And it's, it's pretty new. They've only done a handful of projects, but basically it's highly vetted by the SEC. It's very secure. It's 20 pages of information, and I'm actually not allowed to even talk about it because (laughs) you can't even talk about it. You have to just direct people (laughs) to the website. So it's, yeah, you basically lay out everything about your company publicly. So if you want to know any of the information about our company, all our financials, all our years of growth, it's all laid out publicly so everyone can see that, which is... Very interesting, it's very vulnerable to just like mm-hmm. here's how I built this. You can see the whole thing and it tells the whole story and the biography of your entire company and where it's headed and all your projections and what you're planning on doing is all on there. And so basically people can go and do that. You don't have to be an accredited investor. You know, you have to do things like calculate your net worth. There are a couple of things that people are like, oh, I'm kind of hung up on this. This this looks hard. But we're trying to convince people that no matter how young you are, no matter how much money you have, you can still be an investor and you can own, you know, a piece of companies that you care about. And so that's just very much in line with our brand to do that this way. Because we started on Kickstarter. We've built our brand around a brand of community and collaboration. And so to call on the people that are... Leading the movement with us, what felt very right to us, and so we're only eight days in. We've raised seventy thousand so far, so Woo, we're
0: that's awesome
2: going. We have a long way to go. I can't say the the number, but, you'll but see. you can. I
0: I can say you can go yeah. on to yeah, Darling, right. and it will direct you to this, and you can look up it's all on this our information for link, yourself. Yeah, the, so I think you maybe answered this, but I'm going to ask in case there was another reason so yes it was very vulnerable for you to list all of that information and to expose yourself in that way but you also built this based on community and based on this enormous following that you had so you wanted to invite those people into Darling Mm -hmm. in a more substantial way Um, did you ever consider another financial vehicle how why did you ultimately decide was it because you wanted to include the, the the crowd if you will Right. Um, Yes, we've done a bunch of different types of fundraising
2: in the beginning. We've done things with families. We've done private investors. We've done a lot of different things. You can talk to me about later if you want to know the specifics, but probably four or five different types of investments we've taken on in different forms, and they've been... Deals have been done in very different ways, very creatively. <laughs> so, and also when you don't know what you're doing, you're always like learning as you go and be like, oh, we shouldn't do it that way next time, or don't get away too much your company, or all these different things that you're kind of learning as you're going. But yeah, this was basically to, you know, launch a new arm of our company that is the mission statement of everything we create in video, because obviously that's where mm-hmm. everything's heading. It's very relational and that you know, we want to reach more people with our message and so we thought we would go to the people for that and so i would say that doing that is just as hard as getting private investment though it's a lot of work it's a lot of background work and it involves a lot of a lot of lawyers a lot of business consultants to get all that information onto one place to be able to even do that so it's probably the same amount of work but what's cool is that it does involve so many other people instead of just one investor that's just giving you money
0: well and the i mean i would think the result of that would be all these people are literally invested and so yeah. they, they want see see in, <laughs> in seeing it yeah. grow so there's there's a strategy there too yeah um okay celeste so I'm going to do what I did with Sarah a little bit. So you built this app. Can you tell us a little bit? Because many of us out here are like, I want to build an app. And can you say, don't do that or go for it? And, and here, here's, some, here, here's the first place to start. I started here. Maybe that's not the best way to go. But just give us uh, information yeah, on so that.
1: So I found out over the last year and a um, year and a half, two years, that it's it's really, really, really hard to build a bad app, <laughs> and that it's really, 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 super hard to build a decent app, and then I won't continue on from there, but um my my uh, I have a I think I have the I want it to be fantastic disease like I really want everything to be just fabulous, um, and we had thank God that we had amazing developer who kept saying, celeste, keep it." simple. Mm-hmm. We have to keep it simple. That, our, he's, it's become a joke in our office. Just that's the next 3.0, 4.0, 5.0. Mm-hmm. Just keep it simple. So we write, you know, we write, well, what if we get, we could do this and it needs to do this and it needs to. So that is number one is having people, I guess, I guess a good developer probably will have that, have that mantra and kind of in keeping with the start by starting, it's the same principle, just get it, Just get it out there, and I had that conversation today with with one of the lawyers in my office who's been really instrumental. She's like, "Just we just gotta we just gotta get it, gotta get it out there." And yes, we can continue to perfect it as it as it goes. Um, And I think, yeah, I think having good people around you and just keeping your goals very clear and and simple for the first for the first iteration.
0: Did you go with the first developer you met with?
1: Yeah, I didn't know anything. I, yeah, I didn't know anything about anything really having to do with technology. I mean, you know, you say to people, "Okay, talk to me, tell me like a third grader." So I realized that when you say that to like a tech person, that's a terrible idea because third graders are so much more well versed. So I literally just say like, "Brent, I'm 48. So talk to me like a 48 year old." He totally got that. He was like, "Okay." It's That's like awesome. this, you draw like a really simple diagram, stick figures. Um, but that was, so yeah, I didn't know, I didn't, <laughs> not my bag, but he was so patient about that. And what was great, and, and I, this is sort of a luxury, but it's that he was connected with the kind of the spirit of adoption. He really, that was in his heart as well. And so I think that gave him an extra measure of patience mm-hmm. with the 48-year-olds in the room. Yes,
0: yeah. that is I am going to use that tip from now on because I've run into that tech problem a few times. Okay, so really quickly, last question before we take anything from the audience. Can you guys each tell us quickly what does it mean for you to be liberated? We named, I named the company Liberty because I really believed that um, through entrepreneurship women could sort of answer their calling, find it, respond to it, and... um, It's such a cool name. It sounds like a girl's name too. It actually is Claire's daughter's name. uh, It's Liberty. So, really quickly, what does it mean to you to be liberated,
4: Sarah? Um, If my work is bringing me joy, then I feel liberated.
0: Nice, nice, and concise. You are all about the simplicity. Wow. Okay. Rules. It's a slow entrepreneur thing.
3: Being free to be creative and um, have a certain amount of control how you spend your time. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. I would say for me being liberated is
2: being free of comparison because when you're starting a company you're always looking at you know everyone asks you well who else is in your market who else is doing what you're doing and you're always looking at them and just literally staying in your own lane and not worrying about that is the key to
0: being successful and building something that is unique that's awesome and all of us um who have started a business or running a business understand that uh, how hard it is to not compare, and and sometimes we do it in an effort to, to learn from others and to stay ahead of the curve. And sometimes we just end up depressed Hardly and ever, with a martini. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's great,
1: Celeste. If liberated. So I think of liberated. I think free from confinement. Right. Mm. So, um, free from free, free to be able to affect change, to be a change maker, and. Free Free from the, well, that's just the way it's done.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's entrepreneurship. I love it. Thank you, ladies, so much. Um, yeah, pretty cool. They will be here for a few minutes afterwards to take your personal questions or to chat with them really quickly. But I'd love to take some questions from the audience. Who do we got? Anybody? Don't be shy.
4: Yeah. For all of you, actually, who in your eyes, whether you know them or not, is a beacon of light and or mentor to you guys?
0: You can give like just a quick one word.
4: Oh, sure. Um Sure. Actually, a woman who's on the panel tomorrow night um, is a designer. Um, she does pretty much the same line of work that I do, but I have followed her from afar. Um, I, I'm i a fangirl, so I stalk her Instagram account, Twitter. Um, every time she updates her portfolio, I'm like, what is Jessica doing? So Jessica, come Gore um, Is someone who I've looked to both um, for her aesthetic sensibility, but also the way in which she practices her work. She very much values um, having drawing that work-life balance in a way that um, brings her rest for her personal life, but also allowing that
3: rest to fuel her creative life.
0: Jessica's also a fangirl of Sarah. It's kind of funny. uh,
3: I would probably go to Mary Carr. She is, um, she's actually a poet, which is, as a writer, is like the highest form of art. Um, But she's written some incredible memoirs and... um, her writing's really in a completely different league to to really anyone else. So Her name's Mary Carr, and she's just published The Art of Memoir.
2: For me, I would say that my inspiration is honestly my staff. It's the people that I'm doing life with every day, and they are mentors to me as well. It sounds weird, but I think when you're working so hard alongside people, it's so amazing to see someone working just as passionately as you are towards the same thing and you have that in common and so it just keeps me going and it's such an inspiration every day and just laughing about it, having hard times about it and just going through that together, they're, they're like such light to me.
1: It's going to sound sort of sort of like an odd answer but I think the um, ment- mentors or in- inspiration would be, uh, there's a group of, of birth mothers that I am in very cl- in close contact with me, with and seeing the courage and the bravery of their decision and the way they've continued that in their post adoption journey um is really an incredible inspiration as i am trying to be brave as well
0: mm, that's awesome yeah anybody else have a question it can be anything well not anything
2: I was just going to ask, um, kind of, if there was any, like, catalyst person, I know, ooh, I know that you kind of talked about
0: her helping you and you had somebody you worked with, but like,
2: uh, a person that, like, really made you make that transition or helped you to kind of cross over to the other side and, like, what that moment was like for you guys.
0: How about two of you, if two of you could answer that, if two of you have person
3: I do. Um, it's going to sound a bit cheesy but my husband was you know he's, he's the kind of person that really believes in, in what I was doing and he I needed that to be drip fed to me actually he would just shoot me texts and emails all day every day like you can do it and I would say the, you know the paragraph's terrible um, and he would also read it and, and tell me that you know you need you need to buy a book on grammar or whatever <laughs> um but i Thanks. think that was that was um to have that like from the inside someone on the inside that knows you knows your strengths and your weakness but also is just every day just a quick word like you can do it you've got this everyone goes through that this is completely normal don't give up don't give up
0: one more Is there one more that has someone? Go for it, Sarah.
2: Mine is the same as my husband, but he said one thing that really stuck with me. I don't know if it's a quote from an author or not, but he said, um, ideas belong to the people who execute them. And so he's like, you have this great idea, like, and you know, I was like, well, what if somebody's gonna take it, or what if this or that, or what if somebody's already doing it? And he's like, well, are you the one to execute it? Then, you know, so then I was like, okay, I guess I have to actually yeah. do it. And so he was constantly—he's just like a serial entrepreneur type of person and has like no fear and doesn't care about messing anything up. So he'd be like, just do it, just put it up, just push publish like just do anything with <laughs> that kind of person so like all this stuff I did in the beginning was just like terrible like looking back now but I'm like at least I was doing it you know it's like the idea of executing an idea is really important um so he always says like try to execute one idea or one thing like every day if you can so that
1: was helpful okay, to me is, can I just say it? this yeah. <laughs> we have to find out who wrote the who said that because this is so it's embarrassing, but it's, it's it's not my husband. Although my husband is awesome, he's not. He just doesn't didn't text me throughout the day except for about like, <laughs> did you pick up the dry cleaning? But I was going into a parking lot. <clears throat> you know those parking lot yes. signs. The MPI. Yes. God bless those people because there was a moment. I swear there was a moment right before I went to this to the workshop where I drove into the paseo, and that quote was on the thing mm. when you get your ticket.
0: Wow. That's So yeah. MPI
1: is my mentor. In well, and I,
0: I mean, I'll say, I'll, I'll give Steve credit for this, but I'm going to start to use that because all day long, I'm with people who are bringing their ideas to me and they will harp for 30 minutes before we get started in the uh, meeting about like, well, I had this idea, but so-and-so stole it. And I, it's like, they don't even know you. They didn't steal it. it <laughs> um, and people can get... Lost in that for a long, long time, and I think it really is just like, actually, the first person to the game is is the person who's going to kind of end up with the ball. I don't know. There's some analogy, I'm sure, but um, we don't have time to come up with a perfect analogy. But I, I, I'm, I'm stealing that one. I'm, I'm take, it's Steve's. It's it's Steve's. You had a quick question.
3: Oh, Steve Jobs. That's a big one. Heard
4: of him, heard of him.
3: Yeah,
4: Yeah, my name
2: is Gabriela, and I just want to, no questions, just I want to congratulate you. And uh, Um, yeah, and thank you. I mean, this is amazing. So yeah, keep
3: on. It's a nice one. Yeah, keep on doing
2: (laughs) what you're doing, and yeah, congrats. Thank you so much, Gabriela.
0: Thank you. Well, I'm going to let you get, thank you. Thank you guys, each of you appreciate you being here. Um, Again, we're going to just hang out for 15 minutes or so. Feel free to come and chat with them and come see me if you have any questions. And thanks again for coming. We appreciate it. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms. iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty for Her. Liberty is spelled L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-F-O-R-H-E-R. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Wyndham, and music by Jordan Flower. And just remember, there is life after the top knot as evidenced here. See you next week.